Well, good evening and welcome to our study of the Gospel of Luke. My name is John Robbins. I'm thankful to be with you tonight. Unfortunately, we don't have people in person gathering with us. As we all know, the pandemic is wreaking havoc on many of us. And so, at least for the time being, we're going to meet online. And I'm grateful that you would choose to be a part of our study online and look forward to the chance for us to enjoy a meal together and then study together in person and online. But right now, it's just an online event. We're studying the Gospel of Luke. Luke is my favorite book in the New Testament. I enjoy very much the Christ I discover in the Gospel of Luke. In so many ways, he represents for me truly what God is like, and I think you'll discover the same for you. I hope that you take your Bible out, you have a notepad on which to write notes, and we will start with the Gospel of Luke as we do with every study by first giving some background information that I hope will be helpful to you as we go about this study. Now this study is going to take a while. I can assure you that we are not going to finish by May. Uh, we will probably continue into the summer. If we don't continue into the summer, we will take a break. And when we resume, we'll pick up right where we left off. But I am thankful that you would choose to be a part of this. I think you're going to find the Gospel of Luke, if you don't know anything about it or very little about it, to be very enriching. And if you know a great deal about it, you're going to find that it is reinvigorating for you as well, as it always is for me. So let's give a little background information and then we'll go from there. Luke is one of what we call four Gospels. Gospels means good news. The Gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The good news is, of course, specifically about Jesus Christ. The four Gospels' main character is Jesus himself. There are three of the Gospels that are referred to as synoptic Gospels, and then there is the Gospel of John, which is a standalone Gospel. Synoptic means viewed together. So when we take Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we discover that there are lots of similarities between those respective gospels. John is very different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And as a result, it is a standalone gospel. But we are gonna find out that in many ways, Luke used probably the gospel of Mark as a resource in putting together his gospel, and we'll talk more about that in just a little bit. Of the four gospels, it is generally accepted that Mark is the first of the four to be written, and was used as a resource by both Matthew and Luke. John was the last, undoubtedly, of the four gospels to be written toward the end of the first century. We assume that Mark was written sometime between the 50s and early 70s of the first century. Then Matthew and Luke written about the same time, somewhere between the 70s and 80s of the first century. And we'll stick with that as we go through this study because that is what most scholars believe to be the case. Now, I want to look at some of the themes that we see in all four Gospels before we get into specifically the Gospel of Luke. So we have a general idea of this person we know to be Jesus Christ and what each of the four Gospel writers was trying to do with his respective Gospel. 
Now remember, it is one Jesus from four different writers. And so each one will highlight certain things that they think are more important maybe than the other gospel writers. And keeping in mind, of course, that they have four respective and different audiences in which to provide their information about the good news that is Jesus Christ himself. So we're going to start with Mark, and we'll talk briefly about that because that is the first of the four Gospels to be written. Mark is the most dramatic, if you will, of the four Gospels. It deals with the suffering Son of God image of Jesus Christ, the one who takes on the sin of the world, the one who was abandoned by his disciples, the one who handpicks his disciples, but they never seem to really understand while he is among them who he really is. He emphasizes in a variety of ways, if you will, to take up the cross and follow him. And so we see that it is a very dramatic gospel. It is the shortest of the four gospels. And there is this sense of urgency in the gospel of Mark on the part of Jesus himself. The word immediately or the term right away is used quite often in the gospel of Mark. It is as if Jesus is trying to squeeze in as much as he possibly can in a three-year period. And so he doesn't have time to do much else other than go from one place to the next and immediately move on from there. The second of the four gospels, Matthew, is the most structured of the four gospels. And Matthew's audience was specifically Jewish in nature. And so what Matthew focuses on of the four gospels more than the other three is that Jesus is the Messiah and he is evidence of Old Testament prophecy. In the gospel of Matthew over and over again, there are references to Old Testament scriptures, tying it in specifically to who Jesus is so that we can see what those Old Testament writers were talking about is lived out in the one we know to be Jesus. He is referred to as some would call him the new Moses, the one who has the law, the new covenant, the new message to offer to the world. Then we have the gospel of John, which is the most theological of the four gospels. Gospel of John emphasizes that Jesus is God in flesh. One sees God in Jesus Christ. God is revealed in and through Jesus Christ. We are one with him. He is in the gospel of John, the word, and he is the word made flesh. He is God among us. It is a standalone gospel because there are different I am sayings that are unique to the gospel of John. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the bread of life. I am the gate. I'm the good shepherd, etc. Also in the gospel of John, we discover that there are no parables at all of Jesus. John is unique in that there are many metaphors to describe who Jesus is that the synoptic gospel writers, that is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, do not use. So it is the most theological of the four gospels. The most thematic of the four gospels is the one that we are going to study, the gospel of Luke. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is Savior to all people, not just to the Jews, but to all people, the Gentiles. Gentiles for Jews was a generic term for anybody who was non-Jew. In the Gospel of Luke, 
Jesus is very much concerned about the outcasts and women and Gentiles being a part of the kingdom of God specifically. So let's talk briefly about the gospel of Luke specifically. Luke himself, the writer of the gospel, was a Gentile convert to the faith. He was not like a lot of the early Christians who were Jews who believed that one of their own, Jesus was the Messiah. Luke was a Gentile, a non-Jew, uncircumcised, who is converted to the Christian faith as a follower of Jesus Christ. In the Gospel of Luke, his name is never mentioned specifically, but we do know that he has a Greek background and he's a very close companion to the Apostle Paul. In fact, in the book of Acts, which Luke also writes, he oftentimes speaks in first person about his encounters with Paul. So Luke and the Apostle Paul were very close together. Luke is, though he is a Gentile, very knowledgeable of what we would call Old Testament scripture and Jewish practices in particular. What we do know about Luke is that he was a physician, very much concerned about other people. This is important. Luke was not, not an eyewitness to the ministry of Jesus. Remember, he was a Gentile who was converted to become a follower of Jesus Christ. But he was not an eyewitness to the ministry of Jesus. The Gospel of Mark is written by John Mark, but it comes from the mouth of Peter. Peter, obviously an eyewitness. Luke was not an eyewitness to the ministry of Jesus, but he takes great care in collecting information from eyewitnesses in particular about who Jesus is. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. Luke was also unconcerned about specific times and dates for much of Jesus' ministry. Luke will say things like one day or there was a time when. Luke was not particularly concerned about nailing down the specifics regarding time or place, though he does mention place on regular basis. But more often than not, Luke was just concerned about getting the information across to those who needed to hear it or read about it. In the Gospel of Luke, there are 28 parables and there are 20 miracle stories. Jesus is oftentimes encountering people who have a great need. And remember, one of the great themes in the Gospel of Luke is that Jesus is concerned about the marginalized and the outcast and the sick and those who have been left behind by society. So there are lots of miracle stories that we find in the Gospel of Luke. And there are also those particular passages of Scripture in Luke that are unique to the Gospel of Luke. Though it is one of the three synoptic Gospels, along with Matthew and Mark, there are those parables, those encounters that Jesus has that are unique to Luke that we do not find in Matthew, Mark, or John. For example, the parable of the Good Samaritan is only found in the 10th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. It is not found in any other Gospels. The story of the prodigal son is only found in the 15th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. The prodigal son is not in Matthew, Mark, or John. The parable of the unjust judge is in the 18th chapter of Luke and only in the Gospel of Luke. 
as well as the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, also in the 18th chapter. So what we also learn about Luke is that because he was not an eyewitness to the ministry of Jesus and because he did spend a significant amount of time trying to put together in an orderly way the ministry of Jesus, it is written to someone named Theophilus. We know virtually nothing about Theophilus. The name itself means friend of God, so some people may call into question whether or not it was written to one specific person or a generic reference to someone who is a friend of God or was his name literally Theophilus. We are not sure about that, but he might have been a Roman official who wanted to know more about Jesus. We simply don't know enough about Theophilus to be able to make that determination. Now, here's what I want you also to see in the Gospel of Luke. Prayer is a very big deal to Jesus, but also the relationship he has with people is of paramount importance. For example, Luke's Gospel makes Jesus interact with women in particular in a way that shows great respect and love for women in a culture where women obviously were the kinds of people who were left behind, the kinds of people who oftentimes were ignored, not taken seriously, shown a lack of respect. But Jesus, in so many ways, shows a tremendous amount of respect to women. For example, we see how Jesus deals with women in the Gospel of Luke. For example, the story of the sinful woman who anoints Jesus' feet. He makes her a shining example and says she will be an example for all generations to come. There is the story of the girl who is sick and the woman with the flow of blood. Jesus touches the girl who is sick and says to her daughter, inviting her to be a part of his family, with the woman with the flow of blood, it is the same kind of thing. Your faith has made you well. He refers to her as daughter, as if to say to her, you have been ostracized because of your condition. You have been an outcast, but you are now welcome into the family. You are very much a part of the family and you always have been. Jesus deals with two sisters, Mary and Martha, in the Gospel of Luke. He deals with a woman who is bent over and has had a condition for many years that makes it impossible for her to look anyone in face. Jesus enables her to stand up and look into the face of others. And as a result, she is given tremendous respect. Also in the Gospel of Luke is the story of the widow's might or the widow's offering, where Jesus uses an example of a very poor woman for the rest of us about what it means to be sacrificial and very giving. So Jesus makes women heroes in the Gospel of Luke time and time again in a culture where women obviously were not in a position to be heroes very often. All right, so now we're going to start with chapter 1, verse 1 of the Gospel of Luke. And we're going to start by reading what we refer to as the prologue or the introduction. I'm going to read the four verses, and then we'll go back and make reference to what we have just read. I invite you to hear these words. We begin our study of the Gospel of Luke. 
Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Now, I want you to see from the very beginning how different the Gospel of Luke is from Matthew, Mark, and John's beginning. There is no mention of the name of Jesus in the prologue or the beginning introductory verses of the Gospel of Luke. No mention of Jesus at all. If you will, take your Bible, move back just a few chapter, a few books, if you will, to chapter 1, verse 1, beginning with the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to look at what the other Gospels have to say from the very beginning of their respective books. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 says, This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Right off the back, there is a reference to who Jesus Christ is. From the very beginning, his name is mentioned. If you go over to the Gospel of Mark, it says, chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. So right off the bat, we know who Jesus is. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. We see that in Mark's gospel. Even in John's gospel, as unique and different as it is, notice how it starts. In the beginning was the Word, the Word being a reference, a metaphor for Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. So what I want you to see is that in Matthew, Mark, and John, there is an immediate reference to who these respective books, gospels, are drawing attention to. In Luke's, it is different. He says that there are many who have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. Just as they were handed down to us. Remember, he's not an eyewitness. He is talking about information that has been given to him that others have been privy to. From the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Now notice verse 3. With this in mind, I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning. I too decided to write an orderly account. Remember what I said. The Gospel of Mark was the first of the four Gospels to be written. Luke says, I too decided to write an orderly account, which means, of course, he knows that there are other accounts of the good news of Jesus Christ, in particular, the good news that we find in the Gospel of Mark. And so, even though there is not a reference to Jesus, an orderly account makes reference to Jesus in a roundabout way with the assumption that when he is writing to Theophilus, Theophilus knows who Jesus, excuse me, who Luke is referring to in Jesus Christ himself. All right. So we see at the very beginning of the Gospel of Luke, what Luke says is that I'm going to write an orderly account about, we know, this one who has done such good, being 
a reference to Jesus Christ, of course. He is writing an orderly account, a structured account of the ministry of Jesus for Theophilus, but also for others to know who Jesus Christ is because Luke himself is a convert to the Christian faith. All right. Chapter 1, verse 5. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Now I want you to see that there is one, two, three, four, five names listed there right off the bat. What we see in the, Gospels, in the Gospel of Luke is that Luke wants you to know who some of the main characters are right off the bat that lead to the eventual birth and ministry of Jesus Christ himself. He tells us who the characters are. He gives us information about them. Though he writes to Theophilus under the assumption that Theophilus knows who the main character is, he tells Theophilus and us who these people are. For example, Herod is king of Judea. There is a priest named Zechariah who belongs to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. So we know a lot about these characters right off the bat. Elizabeth comes from a priestly family, and she married a priest. And Zechariah comes from a particular priestly order, the priestly order of Abijah. So we know something about these characters right off the bat, and we're going to find out even more about these specific characters. It, in particular, Zechariah and Elizabeth. And what we discover in verse 6 is that both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Now, notice what we see here is you have two main characters in this very beginning of the Gospel of Luke. Though there is no direct reference to Jesus because we would discover he has not yet been born, we discover that the two main characters at this point are Zechariah and Elizabeth, a husband and wife who are very old, who are very faithful and very righteous, but have lived their entire adult life stigmatized because they are childless. Remember, particularly in that day and time for women, being childless was to be stigmatized severely. The function of a woman was to service her man and to have children. She couldn't do the major thing she was supposed to do, and that is to provide an heir for her husband because she could not get pregnant. We don't know why. Was it Zachariah's condition that made it impossible? Was it Elizabeth's condition, was it because of both of them? We don't know, obviously, but we, we do know is that they are righteous, and despite their righteousness and their faithfulness, they are unable to have a child. Elizabeth is barren. Now, notice that what Luke does is make it clear who she is because of her condition. Now, that seems rather insensitive. Why would one do that right off the bat? But it is part of the drama. It is part of the buildup. It is a significant part of the story. We need to know that Elizabeth is without child and she is very old. 
It goes back to the Old Testament. You will recall that Abraham and Sarah were very old and unable to have a child and would. So was the case with Isaac and Rebekah, who was unable to have a child, and Jacob and Rachel, who initially were unable to have children. Barrenness was a disgrace, unable to carry on the family name. And that's what we discover right off the bat about Zechariah and Elizabeth. Faithful, committed, righteous, barren. Once, verse 8, when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Now the priest served two times a year, a week at a time in the temple. And he has taken the responsibility to, to burn incense. That was an expression of prayers being offered up to God, an expression of faith. And he was to do it in the temple. That is, um, we see Zechariah with that responsibility, to offer incense. But he was also supposed to clean the altar of all the ash and come out with a particular blessing that he was to share, going into the presence of God, offering incense on behalf of the people, cleaning everything up because that was the altar of God, and coming out with a blessing that had been given to him by God. That was his function, his responsibility. So in verse 10, And when the time for the burning of the incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. So people have gathered around. They know that Zechariah is to go into the temple. They know that there is a blessing that is going to come their way as a result of that. In verse 11, then an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing in the right side of the altar of incense. Now he is in there, which means, of course, he is inside. Everybody else is on the outside. And while Zechariah is in there, an angel of the Lord appears to him. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. Notice he is terrified. He wasn't expecting that. He is of the priestly order of Abijah. He is himself a priest, but he is shocked by the appearance of an angel. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid. That is not the last time we will hear that phrase in the gospel of Luke. Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Now listen to this. An angel in scripture is simply a messenger of God, one who conveys a message to the people on behalf of God. So notice what's happened here. Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you will call him John. So notice what the angel does. First of all, he says to Zechariah, who is in terror, you need to know that you are going to have a son. God has heard your prayers and God has answered your prayers. And then there is a specific name given. You are to name this one who is to be born to your barren wife, even in her old age. He is to be named John. John means God has been gracious or Yahweh, God has shown favor. So we see here specific acts on the part of an angel 
to the priest, Zechariah. He has been faithful. He has been righteous. He has been unable to father a child. And now not only is he going to have a child, but he is going to have a son to carry on the family name. His prayers have been answered. And his wife, Elizabeth, even in her old age, well beyond childbearing years, is going to produce for him a son. Now notice this. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. Just to give away a little bit of the information, if you do not know, this son to be born to Zechariah and Elizabeth is John the Baptist, John the Baptizer. At this point, he is obviously yet to be born into the world. Now notice this. Because of who he is and what he represents, he is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. John is born into the world filled with the Holy Spirit with a specific task that we'll learn more about as we go through the Gospel of Luke. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. That means, of course, a lot have fallen away. And John is going to be one to be able to draw those people back to God. He will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents of their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Two references there to the Lord, not specifically Jesus yet, but notice what this angel tells Zechariah will happen. Your son is going to prepare people for the coming of the Lord. We know the coming of the Lord is a reference, of course, to Jesus. But at this point, Zechariah has given specific instruction about what to name him, what he can and can't eat or drink, and who he is, one filled with the Holy Spirit, who's going to be born in the world for a specific task of preparing people for the coming of the Lord. That is a whole lot of information that we discover about this child to be born that the angel gives to Zechariah. Zechariah, verse 18, asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at that appointed time. So what we see is that Zechariah did not really receive this as good news, or at least to the degree that he should have. He calls into question whether or not God can do what the angel said God would do. How can this be? How can this happen? Surely a priest should have known better, but he doesn't. And so he is struck mute and he is going to be unable to speak until John is born into the world. Now, remember, he is in the temple. He is to prepare everything, to burn incense, to get everything in order, to come out with a blessing. But now we see that Zechariah, who is called into question what God is going to do in his life, even though he's prayed for it and the prayer has been answered, he calls that into question. He is now unable to speak, which means, of course, what kind of blessing can one offer if one is unable to communicate? Verse 21, 
Meanwhile, now notice this, the drama builds. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple. For he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. So clearly, the audience knows that something has happened to Zechariah. He's had some kind of vision, and he has been struck mute. He's trying to communicate to them, but he is unable to do so verbally and will be unable to do so for a period of time. Notice this. This inability to speak means, look, based on the prophet Daniel, that he must have seen some kind of vision. All right, verse 23. When the time of service was completed, he returned home. That is, his priestly duty is complete. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion, which was appropriate in that custom. In that day and time, it was customary for that to be the case. The Lord has done this for me, she said. Notice Elizabeth gets it. She is so appreciative and so grateful and understands that God has done this for her in contrast to her own husband, Zachariah. So for five months, she is in seclusion. Would have been highly unusual, uh, completely out of the ordinary to see a woman of her age pregnant anyway. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and has taken away my disgrace among the people. Now remember, her disgrace is, of course, that she is unable to have a child. Now what I want you to see is that the scene is now going to shift. It's going to change from an elderly woman becoming pregnant, which seems to be impossible, to a young girl who has never been intimate with a man becoming pregnant, which seems to be impossible. Now, remember, Elizabeth has a child in her womb that is already, even in her womb, filled with the Holy Spirit. And we're going to see a new character who's now part of the story named Mary, who is impregnated by the Holy Spirit. So it shifts from an older woman unable to have a child to a young woman who should be unable to have a child. Two different people with very different experiences in life, both finding themselves pregnant in these extraordinary ways, all because of God. All right, so let's move on. We shift gears, which is what Luke does a lot. There's the, a sudden shift. We have learned a lot about Zechariah. We've learned a lot about Elizabeth. They have been the primary figures up to this point in the Gospel of Luke. And then a sudden and dramatic change. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, verse 26, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth. Here is Gabriel again, that messenger of God. But now he's going to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph a descendant of David. Now remember, it's important for us to, to look at this story in its entirety, and then we'll make reference to what this story is about, about, at least this portion of it. 
The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at these words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel of the Lord said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. All right, so let's go back and see what's happened and talk about it in great detail. Here is a young virgin, someone who has never been intimate with a man. The Hebrew word, which is translated over into the Greek, simply means one who has never been intimate with a man, sexually intimate, and also one who is very young. So what we discover about Mary, this primary figure in this portion, is that initially we discover she is a virgin by the name of Mary. That means she is young and completely inexperienced in sexual intimacy with a man. And she asks, how can this be? She is greatly troubled. Now, the difference between Mary's encounter with the angel Gabriel and Zechariah's is that Zechariah should know that God can do anything. Mary recognizes that there are certain steps that need to be taken first before one is with child. Now, remember, in that culture, in that day and time, the marriage was arranged by the father. The engagement would last approximately one year, and the wedding celebration would be a week, a week in length before the marriage would take place. What I want you to also understand is that in that culture, in that day and time, an engagement was the equivalent in many ways of marriage. In other words, if the engagement was broken, a certificate of divorce was required in order for the relationship to be severed. That was very much a part of that culture in that day and time. So here is Mary who is engaged. She is not yet married, so she has not yet been intimate with the one to whom she is engaged. The angel gives her the most extraordinary of news, news she could have never anticipated or expected, and that is that she is going to be with child, she is going to be with child by the Holy Spirit. But what we also discover is that she is hand-selected by God. Now, if I were in the position to make a decision about who would be the one to rear God in flesh, nurture the Savior of the world, more than likely, if I were given that task, I would have chosen someone who'd already reared several children, raised up those children to be good, polite, faithful, and committed people, knows how to parent, knows how to discipline, knows when the right time is to feed a child, put a child down, knows a cry of a child, and all the things that one would learn having parented several children. Mary, we discover, is young. She has little experience in life, no experience whatsoever in rearing a child. No experience with a man. But she is the one God knows who is more capable than anyone else in all of human history to do what she will be called to do. And that is to rear the Savior of the world, to bring up the one we call Lord that we have not been introduced to yet. So we're going to stop here in the Gospel of Luke tonight, and we are going to continue on next week. We will pick up 
with verse 34, giving a little more detail next week, and then we'll pick up with verse 34 and move right along. Now, as I mentioned at the very beginning of our study tonight, we're obviously doing it only online at this point. We hope in a few weeks to once again gather together to have people present. Of course, we will continue the study online, but if you can be in the next few weeks when we open up the doors again, I hope you will come and be a part of this in person. There's something unique and special about doing it in front of other people that is studying God's word. We hope to have a meal along the way as well. But I do want to say a word of appreciation and thanks that you would give of your time and your effort and energy to be a part of this study. I think it's going to be helpful, and I'm hopeful that that's the case. I appreciate the Gospel of Luke. I love reading about Jesus in Luke because he is an extraordinary human being who exudes grace, personifies what love looks like, and is so important in our understanding of who God is. I think personally more so in the Gospel of Luke than any of the other Gospels or any other book in the New Testament for that matter. So I hope that you'll make Wednesday nights a priority for you. If you can't watch on Wednesday evening live, I hope that you will find some time during the week to stay with us as we study this great gospel. I appreciate your presence. We're going to close with prayer. Lord God, how thankful we are for the privilege to be able to open up your word, to make it come alive for us in a very powerful way, because this is a live and breathing book. It is full of energy. It is led by the spirit that speaks to us in these words. I pray that this study is meaningful and helpful and hopeful. And in a time like this, we need that desperately, God. We need to know that you love us enough that you came to be one of us and that you're with us always and forever and we can never escape that love. So I pray your blessing on this study and I pray your blessing on all who are a part of this study as well. May this be a time that is sacred and holy to all of us. We pray all of this in the name of the one we call Lord, Jesus Christ himself. Amen. Thank you. God bless the rest of your evening and the rest of your week. We'll join together next week.